0: This is a podcast from 3RR102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Good morning and welcome to Triple R Radio Therapy, your weekly hour of all things medical and psychological. I'm Dr. Autonomy and I'm sitting here with our Stellar 2016 lineup, Miss Medic Lolly Doc and Dr. Malice. Expect the unexpected. Plan to not have any plans. Get in touch with the intangible. And rest assured you're in for a surprise. These were the slogans used to advertise White Night last night in Melbourne and I thought they sounded so intriguing that I decided to poach them for radiotherapy. In my fantasy life, I go to White Night and stay up all night, finishing with a a sunrise yoga session at the NGV. Then I meet Miss Medic, Lolly Doc and Dr Malice for a coffee and breakfast and we all roll straight into the Triple R studio for radiotherapy at 10am. But in my real life, it just doesn't happen like that. So I'll live vicariously through Lolly Doc, who actually did that from the sound of it. And if you did get to White Night as well and you're still awake and listening to us live on air, kudos to you speaking of late nights a very exciting event has occurred in the past week for one of our radiotherapy team members yes lolly doc our emergency department physician after years of google image searching late into the night has finally come across a story that's fit for public radio consumption penis transplants Yes, you heard me correctly, penis transplants or a penis transplant. The first USA penis transplant is happening in the next few weeks and while the rest of us were reading up on Zika virus, obstetric obstetric reviews and e-cigarettes, Doc identified the one story in the news cycle that involves genitals, perhaps a sin of circumstance. We'll also be talking about a range of other topical and fascinating stories as well. Firstly, Zika virus. What have you heard about it and how worried are you? Is it just pregnant women who need to be concerned or is it the rest of us too? And would you change your travel plans as a consequence of it? Miss Medic and Doc are going to bring us up to speed on what's now known about Zika virus and how this is going to affect us all. Also, e-cigarettes. Have you tried them? I have. Are they safe? Are they at least safer than regular cigarettes? And who's using them? We'll check in to see what we need to know about these as well. And we're going to talk a little bit about the Bacchus Marsh Obstetrics Review. It's the stuff that makes you feel sick in the stomach to hear about. Babies dying in a Victorian hospital not far from here. But what did the review uncover and how are we to make sense of it? And what can we do to stop it from happening in the future? Chilling stuff indeed. Luckily, we've also got Dr Malice in the studio, our trusted child psychiatrist, and he's going to help us cope with the intense reactions that can arise when we hear distressing stories in the media the emotional impact of news can be overwhelming and unexpected and how do we balance wanting to be informed about world events yet trying to care for our emotional well-being at the same time dr malice is going to coach us on getting back that feeling of safety and calm hopefully just in time to round out the show and hand you over to those lovely scientists you are listening to a podcast from community radio 3 triple fm in melbourne australia managed to say penis transplant four times in that introduction, you, and that was number you love five. I love saying penis transplants. <laughs> That's your favourite sentence. You better be
1: careful because that could be the first sentence that comes out of your son's mouth. Oh.
0: <laughs> Imagine that. Penis transplant number. <laughs> Imagine that. Or, you know, sometimes um, when they promote shows on Triple uh, R, you know, they take a grab from one of the oh, shows. That's yes. going to be the next one, isn't it? Yeah. Frightening stuff. Good morning, Miss Medic. Good morning. How are you? I'm okay.
1: I've had a very big start to the. This year, I am now a school mum. Oh, so, it's official. Wow. It is full on. Have you I got have your a...
2: active wear? Yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, I've, you know, set up tennis lessons. So all I do Excellent. now is play tennis and <laughs> drop the kids to school in a Volvo. No, that's not true. Um, so, yeah, but it is full on and it's been very emotional for me letting go of my beautiful big girl who has been my sidekick for the last six years. And, um, but she's doing great. She's loving it. I, I'm still, I'm still settling in. That's a huge transition, into. isn't it? It is, and my baby started three year old kinder, so
2: it's all,
0: um, it's all happening. Growing up. Mm. Lolly Doc, good morning to you. Morning. You went to White Knight, didn't you? I did you? go
2: to White Knight. I, I, I've got mixed feelings about White Knight. Tell pe- me. Penis transplant. Um, <laughs> did I... someone say
0: penis <laughs> transplant? No.
2: Um, look, the, the, yeah. the actual light the light shows were fantastic, and my favourite was at the exhibition building. It was incredible. They had an um, Indigenous kind of art-moving uh, light show, which was spectacular, mm. and I was really impressed. Um, but there was a lot of distance between the, the kind of light shows and the music, and it was... Oh, look, I think the organisers tried really hard to make it a bit less jammed than it was last year, mm. but um, I don't think they succeeded. Sorry oh. if they're listening. Um, so it was pretty. It was. It was difficult to move. I found it very difficult to move, and I know I, I had friends there who brought um, children mm. and prams, and they really struggled.
0: Wow. Mm. Yeah. Have you had any sleep?
2: Um, <laughs> I've had a couple of hours.
3: You're amazing. <laughs> Peter's translator. <laughs> <laughs> I'm fine. <laughs> Dr. Malice, good morning. Sounds like there's an echo here. (laughs) Good morning, good morning. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. We
0: haven't seen you this year yet.
3: This is the first, yes. It's lovely to be back. It is good. I've had a a fascinating experience about safety and risk and danger also at a personal level in the last two months. Mm. Uh, Not exactly a nip and tuck, but abdominal surgery. And there's nothing like having sort of your own body under the knife to bring your mind into focus of what safety and risk is, especially as, as we are classified as special patients, you know, in the health profession, and then how you're dealt with and how you deal with yourself, an amazing insight into the uh, topic today about safety so it's not just out there it's mm. really in here as well
0: i mm. look forward to that segment later on with you dr mellis um you're looking very well
3: thank you the cosmetician does amazing job <laughs> it
0: was a tummy tuck wasn't it mellis come on own it,
3: up it, to it it was a tummy something yes <laughs> <laughs>
0: Can we get this penis transplant story out of the way, please? Because I'm liable to make all sorts of puns. I've been talking about how often the story is going to come up on air and how hard it is to talk about it. And Just please someone talk about it and stop me and let's move on.
2: I don't think it's going to work, but I'm <laughs> happy to talk about it. Um, unfortunately, it's not that funny a story. So um, it's... unfortunately, uh, fortunately. It, all fortunately. Hang on. Unfortunately. Um, US veterans. Um, unfortunately, yeah. in war, uh, a lot of pelvis injuries occur. So lower limb injuries, um, particularly with uh, explosives and <laughs> roadside explosives. So it's not a pleasant topic. Um, and so this, this first penis transplant in the US is planned for a war veteran. Uh, one of the interesting things... So there have been penis transplants around the world before. There was a failed one in China in 2006 and w- a successful one in 2014 in South Africa. Um, but they're not common. And one of the difficulties, as you can imagine, is trying to... Uh, arrange both the function, um, the sensitivity um, of the genitals, and also um, it needs to take like any transplant, so it needs to uh, actually be matched, like any other o- organ donation would have to be matched. So it's not a not an easy procedure to do. Uh, lots of plastic surgery, tying up all the nerves and the blood vessels. Um, so it actually
0: sounds quite dangerous quite full-on surgery well it's complicated it. yeah.
2: and and interestingly dr malice you probably have some thoughts and and also autonomy about the um the psych psychological impact of um mm. having i guess someone else's genitalia um implanted mm. and there seems to be something particularly unusual about that as of com- compared to other body parts oh no it's a it's a weird kind of concept really
0: i don't know if this is and our a producer's losing
1: it right now. You <laughs>
0: can't cope. A Are you imagining
2: that
1: no you, one which one know. you
0: would choose?
1: Is that what you're imagining? Yeah, Ken? there's not. You, you don't. a
2: room. with like a list of like <laughs> pictures of penises, and you go, "I'll have that one, thank you." Yeah, <laughs> yeah. no, no. Um, I don't know if
0: this is an appropriate analogy to draw or not, but I'm reminded of a conversation we've had on air in the past about face transplants and that same challenge psychologically about, I guess, the medical need for it, but the overwhelming... um Strategy and, and coping mechanisms and a sort of um, understanding you'd have to have afterwards about how it's going to actually feel and what it's going to be like psychologically to have someone else's face on your face. And, of course, it's, you've got your same bone structure and so it doesn't completely look like someone else's face, but it's, it's different. It's very different. I guess that's a more public...
2: Um, One would hope so. Yes, one would. Although I guess as the first US penis transplant recipient, you may have to do some media kind of spots. Before and after. Yeah, yeah, which might be difficult. Well, I think think it's psychologically really an interesting area because um, I think as men, we're pretty kind of genitalia-focused sometimes in terms of our self-esteem, which is Mm. an interesting concept in itself, but then to, to go through that whole process of losing both your function and ability to reproduce and those sorts of things, um, to then go on and, and have that potentially um, reinvigorated, mm. for want of a better word, um, I, I think is um, really interesting. Really interesting.
0: Yeah.
2: Awesome. Well, so the, it's the, not just the, about the, penis pictures cyni- well, for the
3: me, the is cynics, it? The cynics may say actually it's the equivalent in men of a brain transplant, <laughs> so, I mean, I don't want to lighten this too much.
0: Said <laughs> the child I like, oh,
3: But uh, I think the question of identity comes in very seriously here. And what comes to my mind immediately is the transgender operations of when, yeah. when a child is born one gender... Uh, internally say or externally and wishes a change later in life again for internal or external reasons so this isn't an isolated experience or topic and there's tremendous and there's even a recent movie about the first ever transgender transplant so it's a a very serious issue about how our body is part of our identity and whether it's our face our genitalia which are highly represented on the brain that is in fact one of the major areas whereas a gut transplant which is all have been talked about, or any internal organs, seem to be less associated with our identity. Mm. you know a, a kidney transplant lung transplant heart transplants different because there's now questions about whether there's memory also in the heart but anyway mm. it's not an isolated oh, i mean, all topic. jokes
0: aside it's phenomenal yeah. medicine isn't it and for someone who has lost function yeah. in a war scenario you know and has been dealing with that for for decades to have mm. a possibility of a different sort of life is phenomenal stuff really isn't it
2: and mm. remember these are young people too so well
0: that's yeah that's true mm. yeah all right, enough Happy about days. penis transplants. <laughs> <laughs> it's the last time I'm going to say penis transplant. It won't be. <laughs> um, e-cigarettes. Miss Medic. Tell mm. us about them. Have you ever tried one? I haven't. I have. But you have. Yeah. Tell me about that.
1: That's Living very dangerously
2: Ooh, Yeah, I know. <laughs> uh,
0: I still miss smoking. I know that's not right to say, but there's, there was a joy that came with smoking cigarettes way back in my early 20s, and... Yeah, there's something that's still very enjoyable about it. Even the smell, I don't mind too much, even though I haven't smoked in many, many years now. Um, but, yeah, when a friend w- was smoking e-cigarettes, I-, I think that he was smoking them um, as a way to help quit smoking normal cigarettes. Um, yeah, I was tempted to try them, and it was quite fun, I have to say. Can I
3: just ask, is this an e-joint or a <laughs> regular e just Cigarette. a regular
0: e cig. Oh, Yep. Right. Okay. yep. Right. Thanks for clarification, yes. Dr. Malice. Sure. Just yep.
3: You went back to your Young Yourself and yeah, you know, what, what, what you were smoking. <laughs> uh, well, I don't know. No,
0: good. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, so are they safe? I mean, that was my assumption that it was just a bit of fun with no health risk. Well,. I
1: guess it depends on who you ask right now whether they're safe or not. There's a lot of controversy around this. And so what they are, for those that don't know, it's an electronic device that enables you to um, deliver nicotine via an aerosol vapour and inhale it in that way so it hasn't been burnt like it would in a regular cigarette. And the same devices are used for other substances other than nicotine as well. So like, you know, fruit kind of based tobacco type things as well
0: um i think mine was an apple one actually
1: (laughs) right so no nicotine
0: i don't know maybe not
1: yeah so right now in australia we have a a mixed standing on the legality of it so nicotine based e-cigarettes are illegal um but the non because then that nicotine comes under the therapeutic goods sort of act as being an illegal substance Mm. because it hasn't been sort of tested throughout and so it can't be used here can't be legally bought and used here but um the non-nicotine ones are legal at the moment in australia and but if we look i was when doing a bit of research about this this varies all over the world so right now in the uk it's legal for the nicotine and in the us but they that might be changing in the uk in particular and other parts of the world either have them completely banned or and you know completely legal so it really varies um so at the moment we've got this sort of two-tiered legality here but in terms of your question are they safe well yes they're thought that they are safer than regular cigarette smoking definitely how much safer is hasn't really been quantified and we don't have long-term data about the safety either so um Yes, they probably are safer, but where people are really kind of struggling with this, so the people like Quitline and the, the Cancer Council are saying that, you know, are not backing this at all in terms of a strategy to quit because they've said that there is good evidence to show that it's not, kind, it's not replacing cigarette smoking.
0: Oh, interesting.
1: Yeah, and it's also they feel one of the big risks of this is that for years and years and years we've been working at sort of denormalising cigarette smoking, particularly for our young people, to say, you know, this is... uh, awful habit, it's dangerous, it's, you know, and just taking that kind of glamorous edge away from cigarette smoking, which was pushed by the tobacco industry all those years mm. ago when we had active uh, tobacco marketing. Um, but the reintroduction of this e-cigarette is going to renormalize smoking and then that will transfer back onto regular cigarettes, which are readily available still, and that we could be undoing all of this really good work work and um and all the people that are saying it's safer it's safer it's safer a lot of that information is coming again from the tobacco industry so you've got to wonder about their intentions there
0: Fascinating, mm. so it sounds like we really don't know a lot about them, and i guess it's it's not the sort of thing that's been around for long enough to do long term research on is it
1: no that's right, and I guess it's so it, it's a really hard one because it's you think well, if it is a lot safer, then yes it's preferable, but uh, there are knock on consequences to that, and I, I definitely think there 's some you know, something to be said about that point of it renormalizing this behavior again and what that then goes on to mean, particularly for our young people. so in other parts of the world it 's now being marketed in that same mm. look how glamorous this is kind of way. And yeah, that that could you know be potentially harmful for for that reintroducing smoking as a Mm. as a habit,
0: Lolly.
2: They're not sexy, though, are they? I mean, like, in the 50s when you had the movies and movie stars used to smoke cigarettes, that looks sexy, but e-cigarettes are not sexy. That's, that's not what I want to say, but I was just thinking about... about <laughs> I kind of agree. Like, I, when I
1: was they're tra- big
2: and bulky and yucky. Yeah,
1: I know, but maybe they go alongside, like, this technology leap that's going on with kids who've got iPhones and iPads and an e-cigarette and it all goes yeah, yeah. together. Yeah. Like, I, I don't know, there's something that maybe... It's seen as, yeah, it's not it's not some French starlet with one of those long, thin cigarettes that I, I know you're imagining.
3: I think we're all waiting for the eye cigarette. Yeah, <laughs> that's
1: right. Yeah. <laughs> that plays music and calls people all at the yeah. same time.
2: The, the weird like thing it. for me is that um, th- there's a couple of things with addiction with cigarettes. There's the actual... You know contents of the cigarette that that are addictive, but there's also the the right. i guess the psychological habit, yeah. and the behavior and the habit stuff that goes with it and to me, this isn't changing that habit because you 're still holding something you've still got that sort of oral fixation thing with the cigarette, so it's sort of not changing that at all, so i 'm not sure so it might be safer in terms of the contents and that's not clear, but um it doesn't seem to be a way to not. to to give up cigarettes
3: i agree well could this really be the prototype because part of the culture of cigarette smoking is you share it with friends you've got a packet and you you, you distribute it and you light up with each other so until they become sort of slimline and shareable and at a social event you know have an e-cigarette or i-cigarette uh it may actually have to cross that social barrier for Mm. acceptance
0: we're going to take a quick smoke-o. <laughs> <laughs>
3: nice.
0: And we're going to come back to talk about the Bacchus Marsh Obstetrics Review, so don't go away.
2: Triple R, not for everyone, for anyone.
0: We are going to hear a little bit about the Bacchus Marsh Obstetric Review now, which... I find really distressing to hear about actually I'm sure lots of other people do too so that's your warning um where are we going to start guys okay so um
1: I guess a lot of the listeners might have seen the 7:30 report last Monday night that was uh talking about this review into what now looks like about 18 deaths that Potentially could have been avoidable that occurred in the Bacchus Marsh Hospital over, backing going back to I think about 2003. Um, and yes, it's it's incredibly distressing for us to hear, and I can only imagine what it's like for the families of those that lost a baby in that time. To number one, lose the child, and then have that horrible compounding. Realisation that potentially that loss was avoidable. So, um, if if those people happen to be listening, or you know, my my heart goes out to you. I, I just I think that that's one of the true horrors of um, of this situation. It's just it's awful. But what what we wanted to talk a little bit about today was how did this happen? What is wrong with the system that enables this something like this to happen? um and what can we do to prevent this from happening again so at the moment the I, I understand that this is the review is still ongoing but it seems to be that there's a cluster of these these tragedies that have occurred in numbers that are unexpected within the normal occurrences within obstetrics um and that has led to um review which has found that there is some human error involved here so some mistakes have happened that have led to these to these babies being lost um and part of this there's been some specific doctors implicated as um and one of those doctors had it was announced that he had some 15 writs against him during a 14-year period, which is astounding, and settled those 15 cases out of court. So
0: so is it because they were settled out of court that other people
1: well, weren't aware of them? It's were- Look, it's really complicated and in part it's to do with some... Um, I think the regulator in this instance, which is the Australian health regulator, APRA, um, have got to to take some of the blow here because they have taken a really long time for this process to happen. And because of the way that the process happens, it's not necessarily made um, available... The information that there is a review going on isn't made available to to the wider population. It sort of happens that while a review is taking place, the hospital involved is aware, but not necessarily any other hospitals mm-hmm. um, or and not the, the general public who really don't have much of a way of knowing whether the doctor that's looking after them has, you know, is being looked into for um, cases of, you know,
0: malpractice. And who's going to take out you know a research project on the clinicians that are looking after them through pregnancy it's just not something that people do you you trust that the people who are looking after you are employed by the hospital and the hospital's done their due diligence and that's not something that you have to worry about checking. That's right and so I guess that's that's sort of what
1: leads to you know which there needs to be greater transparency here we need to think that we have a regulator that's going to act promptly like you cannot spend two years reviewing something and in that time more lives are at risk um and you know it's a it is a, there's just a there's a lot of sort of systemic sort of errors in in this process that are coming to the fore and it's just so sad that such a tragic tragic events have to be what happens before we really take a look at the system what goes on mm.
2: One of the um, things that I'd like to focus on in this particular topic is is the systemic um, process issues that occur. We, we do tend to, I think it's very easy um, both in the media and when you're trying to analyse a complicated issue like this to focus on individuals and individual doctors and individual practitioners um, and there probably is an element of, of personal liability here but that's obviously before, before courts and before a review and so that will take time to play out, but one of the things that's interesting for me is that um, this is a perfect example of how a government response to um, an escalating demand on a health service um, is delayed and, and does not get addressed very quickly. So, what happened over two thousand and thirteen, two thousand and fourteen, in Bacchus Marsh and Melton was that they had a doubling of their obstetric presentations. So, they, that's a doubling. A, a doubling. So, that's a significant number of. Um, presentations and a significant increase. And with that, there was no increase in service provision. In fact, there was a loss of service provision. Um, as we all know, public health at the moment is under budgetary strain and so things get closed. And one of the difficulties is the antenatal care that occurred leading up to um, those deliveries. And the service provision, so the number of doctors that were available to attend um, all those deliveries and the number of midwives that were available, so I think that mm. needs to be contextualised as well, and we need to hold the government and the health services responsible for providing appropriate cover um, for the demand that's required, because that's a, that's a systemic and, and global problem.
0: It's a big conversation to have, isn't it? And when you think about ways to prevent this sort of stuff from happening in the future. The change that's required is huge if you think about things on a systemic level to that degree.
2: One of the mistakes I mean I I, I work in a busy health service. Um, I make mistakes at work. Um, Most of the time those mistakes don't result in anything particularly Dramatic, you know, I forget to check a blood test result, which is normal, for example. And that, and that occurs when things are really busy. Um, No-one comes to work wanting to make mistakes um, most of the time. Um, and so we need to be really, I guess, cognizant of the, the pressures and the amount of, um, I guess, external influences that make it possible for mistakes like this to
0: occur. Mm. Do you think something of this gravity and the review that's subsequently taken place... Is going to cause change? Is, is this how change starts? Is this big enough to start that flow, or is it too complex?
1: I think it will result in change, but I guess my the thing that I worry about is sometime in these circumstances it's a temporary change before just to sort of make us feel like we've done something, and then things can slip back. Um, and I think that you know this isn't an isolated. The fact that this can occur here means that it can occur in several other hospitals or several other areas and it does highlight some um, some really huge problems that we face in Australia and particularly that the difference between care in a metropolitan hospital versus those in a remote or rural community, um, even out of metropolitan. I mean, the, there's a lot, there's a huge difference Difference in the uh, equipment, the skill set, um, the service that's available at all of the at these sort of hospitals a bit further out of our major cities, and you know that part of that is because of the nature of our country. Mm-hmm. But we have we have to we have to we have to work with our system better to enable that every, wherever you live. In Australia, there is accessible high quality health care provided um, and do I think that with this this can highlight that? Do I think that we will be able to fix that greater problem overnight no i don 't I think that 's going to take a lot of time, a lot of years, and a lot a lot of money and a, a lot of recognition about the fact that um, we can 't just rest on the laurels that in our, in our cities we have provide excellent care because then we're ignoring a huge mm-hmm. proportion of our community.
3: Yes, I think this question of recognition of a problem is where the starting point needs to pinpoint um, that there's something amiss. And in America, one of the trends there has been to actually have a league table of performance of various hospitals, both city and urban or distant from the main centres and not sort of to create competition, although that's an unwanted side effect, but actually to let the patient know what they're in for and that lifts the game certainly, and again, it's not a competitive issue but a safety issue, that those centres where the high incidence of, say, morbidity or mortality, that is death rate or complications, are above the state average, people should start asking questions immediately. Unlike here, it was an internal investigative process, mm. and that was part of the reason for the delay. So if, it's, if there's something good to come of the digital age now often talked about as a digital disruption, this is actually digital creativity.
0: It feels, you know, simultaneously so frightening and so complex to me that you are dealing with, you know, individuals' expertise and health regulation by APRA, and then um, public health funding, and then you know, urban planning. You know, it's, it's, there is so many pieces of the puzzle that come together. But yeah, maybe um, digital tracking and and some more transparency is. And the is common factor in
3: all of those, the final common point of meeting is the patient with the baby. Mm. So. That's the person who should be being informed. And yes, all these other players who are part of the system producing the service then fall into line..
2: Three: Triple R.
0: listening to Radio Therapy on 3RRR with myself, Dr Autonomy, Miss Medic, Lolly Doc, and Dr Malice. We've been talking about a whole range of things but now we're going to go to talk about the Zika virus which I'm sure you've heard about but you might not have heard the latest information and you might not know exactly what the significance is for you. So Lollidoc... Enlighten
2: us. Zika. Um, the Zika virus has been around for a long time. Uh, 1947 is when it was first um, discovered. And it was from the... Uh, it's a forest in Uganda, mm. if you want to know where Zika comes from. Um, so it's the Zika forest in Uganda. Um, it's an illness which is mosquito-borne. Um, and the mosquito is um, the... Um,
1: Aedes aegypti. It
2: is. Yeah. Very good. What was that?
1: Is it? Is that how you pronounce it? I, I think so. It's
2: A-E-D-E-S.
1: Aegypti, yeah. What
2: does that mean? That's so the, the type of mosquito. Yeah. And, oh, right. and, and mosquito behaviour is actually really like interesting. Drosophila
0: and, melanogaster. That's, yes. But that's a fly. fly. That's yeah. a fly. <laughs> I just had a flashback to my genetics lectures as an undergrad.
2: Oh, goodness <laughs> yeah. me. Yeah. I remember that too. Can you spell it? No, don't no. no. <laughs> um, So the, that particular mosquito um, feeds during daylight and twilight hours, which is important in terms of um, the areas where it's endemic because it means that um, bed netting doesn't work because they obviously don't feed at night time. Um. And so in terms of prevention, it's all about long pants and long clothes. and All through the day. All through the day, which is complicated. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's a, the Zika virus is in the same family as dengue and Japanese encephalitis and other mosquito-borne infections, and it's endemic to parts of Africa and Asia. And we haven't seen a lot of it um, outside of those areas. And it's spread a little bit to Central America and, and now to South America as well. Uh, in Australia, we don't have that mosquito aside from in far north Queensland. So it's not a particularly concerning um, transmission risk. Um, and it's an illness that, like many of those illnesses, just causes a mild um, rash, fever, um, joint pains. Um, so it's not a, not a particularly horrible uh, disease to have but one of its most serious complications is this thing called microcephaly which is where um, brain size and head size is small so greater than two standard deviations of head size and there was a big spike in Brazil um, I think it was something like two, two or three thousand uh, children were born with um, microcephaly and that prompted an investigation as to why this was the case and it was um, associated with the Zika virus.
0: That's a huge number, two or 3,000. Although, can I just add in there that
1: it's a correlation at this stage? It's not a causative link. They've just seen a spike in Zika and a spike in microcephaly and made the link. And because of the seriousness of the situation at hand, the WHO and other health organisations have had to say, right, we're going to clamp down on that. And not wait for scientific proof that there's a causative link between infection with the Zika virus during pregnancy and going on to have a baby who suffers from microcephaly.
0: So, to be sure of causation, you would have to do a study, presumably not in humans, uh, where you infected pregnant mammals with the Zika virus and had a look at the impact on their unborn children is that correct and we can't we haven't done that yet so we can't be sure about causation
1: yeah or other studies where you show that microcephaly uh, you know you, you study people children that are born from microcephaly and 100 percent prove that the mother didn't have zika and then you know you do mm. those sorts of other studies but obviously those sorts of studies take years and yeah. we don't have that if there's such a serious consequence of this infection yeah
2: just to then bring it back to an Australian context, so what we've seen in Australia is in the last 12 months we've seen a spike in the number of Zika, um, what we presume to be Zika uh, virus presentations, so um, about 30 to 40 um, in the last kind of 6-month, 12-month period. It's a bit hard to, to quantify. And they're all return travellers. Okay. Uh-huh. So there's no-one who's um, uh, contracted the Zika virus in Australia. So one of the... Um, Important, I guess, consequences um, and advice that we are giving um, people who are travelling is if you're in your first trimester of pregnancy, so after uh, about 12 weeks or so, um, not to travel to endemic Zika virus areas. And so that's Central America, Africa, Asia... Uh, sorry, uh, Africa, Central America and
1: areas of Polynesia, I think.
2: Yeah, yeah. so I'll, I'll check a that in the break there's and, and i There's get a to really
1: you. long list and in fact this is such, it's one of those situations in public health where it's like every day there's a new update um, and I checked, I think yesterday, so the latest information from the Department of Health for Australia at the moment, released I think on the 18th of Feb, was that they are recommending any woman planning a pregnancy or pregnant in any of her trimesters to not travel to one of these areas. And there's a list of those destinations mm-hmm. on the website. And if they choose to travel, then obviously to undertake, uh, you know, all that mosquito bite prevention. Um, stuff <laughs> like the clothes and the and the DEET repellent and all of that sort of thing um, and if you are a return traveler um, if you 're pregnant um, to seek it 's from one of those endemic areas to seek medical um, medical care um and there's even now guidelines about testing people that are asymptomatic so no symptoms showing that they could have zika infection so this stuff is really like it's being updated the guidelines are changing every day and you know working in general practice i'm getting new information emails to me Mm. this is what we're going to be doing now if someone presents and it's changing and part of that is that real sense that we don't really know what we're dealing with here and we don't really have a great treatment well there's no treatment there's mm. no vaccine um it simply would be you know monitoring these women in pregnancy and getting um specialist obstetric teams involved early if we think that these, these people are at risk but it, you know it does does create a sense of ill ease. i'm sure and i couldn't help but think about you dr autonomy yeah. because it wouldn't have been that long ago that you would have been in this
0: first trimester of pregnancy, travelling through South America. Exactly. And so what would you have done? It's interesting. I mean, we changed our travel plans a little bit uh, because I was pregnant. So, for example, we didn't go to Machu Picchu because I was told that um, altitude was a bit of a risk in that stage of pregnancy, so we were fairly risk-averse. But... We were still travelling through Colombia and, and Peru and lots of places that were very different environments from Melbourne. I had my first ultrasound above a mechanics store in, in Peru. And, you know, there, there's some funny stories to tell, which I'll tell, I'll tell I another I don't even time. know where to go with that. Um, but I, I think.
2: The first surgeons were butchers, so <laughs> it makes sense to me that sonographers started off as mechanics.
0: <laughs> and it cost 30 bucks. Uh, um but in all seriousness i think we we did our best to find out what might be safe and unsafe and to avoid anything that was unsafe so if something like this was going on i think we would have just got out of there
1: well it's it's an interesting thing we have to because we can think of the world as you know this is all happening far away from us but we are we are prolific travelers us aussies and the world is a smaller place nowadays um and I know there'll be people concerned that if someone comes back with Zika virus and they're in the next room, can you catch it from them? Well, we don't think so. What we know is that the, the vector is this specific mosquito. So in northern Queensland, there's this remote possibility and there have been a couple of cases of this. Overseas, not in Australia, where they think that it has been, you know, passed on from person to person um, outside of being in an endemic area. So a returned traveller in an area where that mosquito existed, got a bite, that mosquito bit somebody else and transferred the virus that way. But, um, yeah, it's, it's, we still really don't know a lot about, like, just how careful to be. There also, the recent stuff that's come out has also suggested that someone, so a male returning from an endemic area um, should um, and then becomes infected with, with Zika should either abstain from sexual intercourse or use, you know, condoms when... Um, with, with, whenever they're having sex with a female partner in order to prevent that chance of, a, they think, a very slim chance of someone sexual in transmission. sexual transmission of this because it has, Zika has been isolated in semen. So we're, we're a bit all over the place still with our recommendations and I guess it's a real one. We just need to watch this space and see and keep updated. If you are a traveller... By all means, check out the relevant websites and um, and you know speak to your health provider about the uh, the current recommendations because they are changing all the time.
2: And the latest countries I've got are South America, Central America, Caribbean, Mexico, and Puerto Rico.
1: Right, all the places you went, (laughs) doctor. Luckily, your son's got a lovely round, perfect head. He
0: does indeed.
1: Surprising, seeing his
2: parents actually.
0: Oh, so funny, so funny. Okay. <gasps> Penis, <a> raptor. <laughs> <laughs> if you're wondering what that's about, go back and listen to the start of the show. <laughs> yeah, That could be confusing. <laughs> you're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR in Melbourne, Australia. I, for one, am feeling a little bit anxious after all of these conversations. I tell you, Zika virus, Bacchus Marsh, obstetric reviews, unsafe e-cigarettes. I need, I need some calm. I need some reassurance, Dr Malice.
3: Well, don't we all? Uh, <laughs> and none of us actually are immune from feeling that sense of unrest and uh, churning stomach or do I want to keep listening to this or shall I just avoid it? And, of course, that's the last thing to do if we want to feel safe because what we're then doing is avoiding the exposure to reality. And this is really the crunch, that we have so many manoeuvres to distance ourselves from the feeling as, no doubt, as listeners or here on the panel. I mean, some of these uh, segments today have been real testing of our, um, well, our tolerance to hear bad news. And so one of the questions is, how do we actually cope And we all have a range of coping systems or styles. And nowadays it's generally regarded that we have three levels of safety systems inbuilt into our nervous system, which is amazing. So we don't have to actually do anything. Our bodies know how to keep us safe, more or less. The first level, and this goes back to uh, if those who are interested in neuroscience and the polyvagal theory of poor Jess. Anyway, the idea is that the first level is we actually try to make friends with hostility. So we've got a smiling reflex, and this is all vaguely controlled. Our voice has got a sort of liveliness to it we're in a neutral calm state and we try to befriend the the distressing situation of course if it's really distressing that won't work for too long and that's when we start getting the dry mouth the voice goes a bit croaky uh, the hands get either clammy or dry our resting heart rate and breathing starts to go out of kilter. And we go into the second level, which is the limbic system, the well-known fight, flight and freeze and so on responses. And there, the classic uh, little ditty is that if you've ever gone through a hiking trip into a a rainforest or some outer area and you come across a snake... You really get a startle and you jump back and you say, whoa, you know, that was really frightening. And thereafter, if you're walking on the track and see a twig, you might have exactly the same reaction to the twig. And that's part of the way our nervous system makes sure that we keep ourselves safe, that we learn from the experience and it gets imprinted in this limbic system and that saves us from an actual snake. The real difficulty comes when there are no more snakes There's lots of twigs, and we then really try to avoid even going for a hike. And this is becoming what's called a phobic reaction. Phobia meaning that it's an irrational fear. I mean, a twig can't actually do anything to you. But if it was linked to the shape or the size of a snake, then your perception links into this is a snake. And lo and behold, you avoid any association going on a trip The stories of snakes, television pictures of snakes or photographs will trigger this response. And that's where we get into really difficulty issues with safety because we are then actually, by outward standards, like here in the studio, we are safe. But as soon as we make it personal about being in Peru on a trip when I'm pregnant, we personalise it and our mind takes us back to that risky place... And so that's why we get into really uncomfortable places, even when we're sitting in the safety of our studio, because we've got a a fantastic uh, apparatus or organ called the brain, and it, it does time travel, it does space travel, it does people travel. And so then we come to the really difficult area where it's not a material threat. It's not a virus, it's not a gun, it's not a snake, but it's a relationship. This is where it gets really interesting, the third level, which is really what's the old brain, the reptilian brain, where we go, as we just discussed with the virus, that for the adult sufferer, it may be a mild condition, a rash, but the next generation can be devastated by the same process. So it is with relational trauma, the person who's been traumatised may be able to think they're getting on all right, just equivalent of a little rash, but their baby, even during pregnancy, and we know this from 9-11, pregnancy studies with the aftermath and the growth and development of children born to mothers who actually had partners who were involved in the Twin Towers, and control studies, this is where we look for evidence, we discussed evidence This is where we found out that compared to match controls, the children of those mothers who in their last trimesters were in that stress state have a whole range of learning disabilities, developmental disabilities and so on, up to the age of now 12, 13, 14. If that's not enough, then studies from Quebec, where they had a massive, massive freeze uh, to the point that mums who were pregnant could not actually go outside of the house and electricity was shut down, heating was shut. They were actually fretting for what will happen to me and my baby-to-be. Similarly, a follow-up of those babies and children were also at risk for these developmental conditions compared to other mothers in that region who were not affected. So we've got pretty good evidence that safety is not just here and now. It can be a generationally transmitted experience... Here we're, of course, talking about stress and trauma. But safety, therefore, comes back to the responsibility of, as we talked earlier, becoming aware. So with the virus, we don't know exactly what's going on, but we know how to find out. The example was that we do control studies of those mothers who were pregnant but weren't exposed to the virus and so on. Now, in the same way, safety and risk or unsafety is the only way we survive major threat. So it's just just as well our body has been wired up on these three levels. So the first level really is to engage with it and try to befriend it, and that's the socialising and the so-called political negotiating, the diplomacy with danger. And this can apply to physical danger or, if you want, the political terrorist culture and or whatever. So the first, you negotiate and you engage. When that fails, you go to the next level, the second level, where you actually engage in some fight or flight or freeze. And the third level is where you actually disconnect and dissociate because you cannot remain conscious.
2: So, oh, Dr. Mellis, they're... they're um, <coughs> sorry, they're... Uh, Uh, things that we can't control, their innate responses. How do we go about um, implementing, I guess, strategies that we can control to deal with fear?
3: Well, as in all science, one of the first principles is know what the enemy is. So knowledge. And then, as with virus, we introduce public health issues. So a practical example of the, say, mother-baby experience was back in the 50s, paediatric wards actually forbade visiting for mothers of their sick babies. After John Bowlby has discovered the whole area of attachment behaviours, it changed the culture Uh, If you like, public health attitude towards the health of babies. And now, at the Royal Children's Hospital and all major hospitals, they're actually living facilities. So there's been a 180 degree turnaround of what's safe for a baby and what's a risk or unsafe. And we know that being unconnected to the caregiver, the mother usually, who is the most nuanced and empathic regulator creates stresses for the baby which is totally unwarranted so therefore the baby who normally in the 50s would have gone into a stress reaction and a trauma reaction and a danger reaction merely by blocking access to his mother or her mother so how how did we do it We looked at understanding what makes life safe for a baby in the nursery and culture adjusted to it. And that's the same principle even now.
0: It makes me think about just the personal reactions that we all have when we're talking about these stories and hearing about these fearful things. Um I I saw online this week there's a song that Missy Higgins has um written about that three year old boy refugee who died. And you know, I started to watch it and I actually I couldn't listen to it. You know, I listened to the first few lines and I was so distressed that I just couldn't listen to it anymore. And that's just one example of what we come across in the news at the moment. So Even aside from worrying about the next generation, just on a
3: personal level, I mean, what do we do? What can we do? I think you you actually just illustrated, Dr. Autonomy, what we do do. We consciously disconnect before our body unconsciously disconnects. So as an adult, we've got that capacity, that ability to say, this is too much for me today and I am no longer safe listening. But again, the same thing can't be said of a baby who's got no conscious awareness. Mm. So it's, that is what we can do to make sure that we remain as safe as possible and tell someone else, look, that's a terrible situation for asylum seekers. I'm not in a position to do anything because I'm not feeling safe, but something, and could you please let someone else know if something can be done? So not to detach and become uninvolved, but to know our limitation.
0: And to help um, younger people and younger generations to limit themselves, I guess, to be that sort of boundary for them.
3: And that boundary is what we do in how we teach our children to cross the street. Mm. We say cross where it's safe.
0: Well, I think that's the perfect note to wrap up. Enough of that for now. (laughs) Um, Thanks, guys. Dr Malice, Lolly Doc, Miss Medic and Kent on the panel. Lovely to have you all with us. Doc, enjoy the sleep that you can now get later on today. <laughs> um, stay tuned. We've got a room full of wonderful scientists waiting to bring you Einstein a go-go. And radiotherapy will be back next week at 10 a.m. See you then.
1: La grosse radio
0: pour des grands enfants. Triple RFM. Big radio for big kids. Is that right? Oh, right. Okay.